it's being compared to Custer's Last Stand, a small group of men cut off and surrounded by a much larger force of enemy warriors. It was an event that helped to define and shape the fledgling nation of Rhodesia, a country we now know as Zimbabwe. In today's episode of Redcoat History, I'm joined by author David Snape to talk about the Shangani Patrol, a series of battles that took place in December 1893 between Rhodesia's white settlers and the warriors of the Matabele tribe, now more commonly referred to as the Endebele. It's a fascinating and complex story that still echoes through the decades here in Southern Africa. If you find this story interesting, then you can purchase David's book via the link in the description. It's well worth it. You can also get a free copy of my book on the Anglo-Zulu War when you sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. Just fill out the form, put in your email, and I'll keep you updated. I started off by asking David to explain the larger background to the conflict. Yes, this is an event at uh, the latter part of the 19th century. And it happened in countries which were then called Mashona land and Matabili land. And it was part of, I suppose, the expansion of the British Empire at that time. And it involved a couple of characters who people will have heard of. And that's uh, Cecil Rhodes and Leander Starr Jameson, his uh, right-hand man. Famous, of course, for the Jameson Raid, which I've covered on the YouTube channel and you've written a book about. Yeah, yes, indeed. Um, this is... This happened before the Jameson Raid, and it actually established Jameson as a heroic figure. It's, it's the beginning of his, I suppose, military experience. And Jameson thought himself as a real military expert. And unfortunately, he didn't listen to the, the people who were with him who were military experts. And well, I think that's probably, I think it's probably a good time then, before we get too far into it, to maybe just give a little bit of background to Leander Starr Jameson and then maybe one or two of the other main players we're about to meet in the story. Because I think a lot of people might be, might be fresh to some of these names. So yeah. can you just tell us a little bit about the background of Jameson and then one or two of the other main characters we're going to come across? Yeah, Jameson was uh, born in Scotland. The story is that his exotic name, Leander, came from uh, an American chap who'd had something to do with his father. Um, he studied in London to become a doctor. He was very successful, um, but possibly through overwork, um, he had a sort of breakdown and he went to South Africa uh, where the climate was supposed to be better. When he got there, um, his skills as a doctor were in very high demand. And one of his patients was Rhodes. And the other one was a character which will figure in the story, an African chief called Lobangula of the Ndebele. Um, and Lobangula suffered from gout and apparently Jameson had um, successful treatments. So he was regarded as uh, very special by the Ndebele. They actually made him a chief. Uh, Cecil Rhodes, the other character, well, I think a lot's known about him. Um, born in Bishop Stortford, the son of the, the local clergyman, um, educated there, but of uh, very poor health. So again, sent to South Africa where the climate was better. Cecil really had a, a bent for wheeling and dealing and, 
uh, and amalgamations with other prospectors, Cesaros became a very, very rich man indeed, and was forever trying to expand the British Empire, but also the uh, companies that he was involved with. So it's always been a, a puzzle to me, what, was, it, was he doing it to make Britain greater, or was he doing it to fill his pockets? I suspect the answer is a bit both. And so I guess the story is then Jameson and Rhodes became friends and then Rhodes started this great plan to, to try and paint the map, paint the map pink, I guess, you know, make a, a sort of a, a line of British colonies all the way from South Africa to, to yeah. North Africa. And yeah. that's how we come to find ourselves in, you know, what, what was in uh, Rhodesia, became Zimbabwe. Do you want to just fill us in how we get to this, this first Matabele war that we're going to talk about yeah. today? Rhodes uh, was in uh, Johannesburg and there were rumours that in, in Matabele land and Mashona land, um, there, were, there were gold deposits. And so his idea was if you could get together a number of settlers and they could um, journey to Mashona land, as it turned out to be, they would be able to dig and find lots of gold deposits and make him and rich and Britain a bit bigger. So uh, in 1888, um, this Lobangula chief that I mentioned was approached by a man called Rudd, who wanted to say to him, can we come and mine in your land? Can we come and dig for gold? He was not the first person to ask Lobangula, nor was he the first person to get permission. Because Lobangula, although he's very astute, actually, um, he didn't realise that by giving permission to these white people that they would um, actually take over. And I think the original uh, promise was that just a few miners would come. And in, in fact, what actually happened was a lot of them came. And this Rudd concession... The key thing to it was that um, the company that was set up to manage it, which is a British South African company, uh, would prevent any other people, any other organisations coming. Uh, and that was, I think, of a key difference. It had uh, British government support. Uh, the deal was, for the mining rights, Lobangula would get uh, a thousand rifles and a hundred thousand um, pieces of ammunition, and also a steamboat on the Zambezi. Um, the steamboat was never actually given, but the rifles were. And of course, the to get the charter which would allow the company, the British South African Company, to operate, the British government had to give permission. And uh, the colonial secretary, Lord Nutsford, at the time was concerned and he asked Sir Henry Locke, who was the British representative in South Africa, is there a danger of giving a thousand rifles to this uh, native chief when they could easily turn them on our own people? And Locke came up with a, a very interesting um, uh, commercial argument, which was, well, if we don't give them to him, somebody else will. Um, and, and so somewhat reluctantly, uh, the charter was granted. 
it was an interesting charter because not only did it enable the British South African company to set up shop, it, it said that there were certain restrictions. And one of them was to respect native customs and native religion and to try and live in some sort of harmony with the, with the native peoples. Um, it also gave them a right to set up their own uh, sort of justice system and so on. So it's a bit of a, a, a two-pronged uh, document. To do, to make this operate, we had to get settlers there. So in 1890, uh, a large group of uh, settlers were recruited to go to Mashona land and uh, prospect for gold. And, and they weren't all gold prospectors. There were people who would run shops and do commercial ventures and lawyers and so on. And there was a, a group of men who had military experience. They were described as a ragtag, actually. They came from, there was, there was one chap who actually took part in the Charge of the Light Brigade. So that gives you some idea of some, they were not necessarily in the fresh bloom of youth. Uh, and they went there and they established various settlements, such as Fort Salisbury, uh, Fort Victoria, and Fort Thule. Unfortunately, once they got there, they realized there wasn't very much gold at all. So there was a lot of effort went into it, but uh, for no uh, outcome. The biggest. So had it been a, had it been a complete waste of time? Uh, not entirely. There, there was some cattle breeding going on, but it wasn't as successful. It wasn't as profitable as um, they hoped. And of course, this is a, a, a company that depends on shares and shareholders. And shareholders were very concerned that they put a lot of money into this. They weren't getting any return. And in fact, some shareholders started to pull out. The biggest problem that these settlers found was that um, they were told they must respect the local customs. One of the local customs uh, was that annually, Lobangula was expected by his people to nominate which particular local tribe they should attack. And Lobangula had to do it because his, his throne depended on it. Conforming with the, the customs of his people meant that he could hold court. And unfortunately, what that meant was that the, uh, the, the Enderbeli impis would, would go out into the neighboring countries and attack the natives there, the Mashona in this case, and they would burn down their kraals, they would kill the men, they would uh, capture the cattle, they would take the, the women and the boys, the boys would be uh, inducted into the various impis, and it was a pretty bloody affair, and it happened regularly. Uh, unfortunately, they started to do it very near the uh, settlers, the, the uh, pioneer columns settlements and of course that frightened them to death and their response to that was to to run away from the farms they'd established and go into uh, places like Fort, Fort Victoria and Fort Salisbury and they were really petrified. Now Lobangula had given his men the instructions that um, that they should not touch any of the the, the white people but it didn't stop them touching the Mashona servants. 
and they sort of had this dual morality you know we'll leave the the white settlers alone but we will kill we will carry on as our normal behavior uh the mashona peoples um they even sent um a, a small impi towards um one of the settlements and they knew that hiding in there was some of the mashona and they said to the uh chap running it please can we come in and can we take uh, your Mashona servants out, please? We know you won't like to see what we're going to do to them. So we'll just take them out into the bush and we'll kill them. And you won't see the, the nasty stuff. Of course, they resisted that. The, the raids continued. And there was some talk, or there has been some talk amongst historians, that um, Jameson actually was trying to aggravate the situation. There are a number of occasions when actually he bent over backwards not to aggravate the situation. And in fact, Jameson pacified the situation. He didn't uh, punish uh, Lohengula at all. Uh, and he did also prevent uh, prospectors crossing the border into uh, Matabili land um, and, and sort of punish them. So he did absolutely everything he could do to keep the peace. Partly because he knew that would interrupt uh, any chance of prospecting, but partly because he knew that if there was a military intervention, that would cost a lot of money. And these raids had actually damaged the status of the British South Africa company. Share price had fallen. Uh, setters were saying they were gonna go back home because uh, it was too dangerous and so on. So he absolutely did his best. But eventually, uh, in about 1893, with these raids going on, he decided there must be a military invention. Well, I think one thing that's probably worth pointing out to, to the listeners and viewers, and, and you will know this, of course, is that the Matabele are also the modern-day Endebele. Sometimes those two terms yeah. Get, yeah, 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 get, yeah. get used. And also that they were essentially an offshoot of the Zulu people. Zulus, um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the Endebele language, of course, is very, very similar to Zulu. Yeah. And, and at one time or another, they, they fought alongside Shaka's, Sh yeah. Shaka's impis and then sort of went off to form their own, their own kingdom, having sort of travelled north yeah. through, through uh, what's now the, or, or was the Transvaal and into into where they ended up settling. So, although you know that, of course, I thought that was just worth making yes, clear. Yes, of course, so. I mean, they were, they were very, very similar in their military organisations to the Zulus, for example. And in, in fact, the, uh, the, the sending raids to neighbouring uh, tribes was, was also common to the Zulus at the time. It's how, it's how the king maintained his status, because they, they weren't a, really an agricultural people. They survived by um, raiding and taking what they wanted. And the big thing, of course, as it was with the Zulus, is the more cattle you have, the more powerful you are. So the king had most of the cattle, uh, which yeah. caused a bit of a problem later on. But, but there we are. And what sort of guy was Lobengula? Was he, was, he, was he a good guy by today's standards or...? or... Or was he maybe uh, not this sort of benign ruler that uh, perhaps some people might like to imagine him as? I think when you're looking at, at individuals, you've got to look at them at the time. Um, I think trying to compare um, 
people who lived 100 years ago on their lives with our, our life now uh, isn't a useful practice. Um, he was a very astute chap. He was aware of world politics in a way. He was very influenced by um, white advisors and their motivation was not always straightforward or honest. Uh, uh, for example, when uh, the Rudd concession, when he, I think, finally realised that the Rudd concession had given, he, he said to have believed that uh, what Rudd got was a piece of paper and he got a thousand rifles. Uh, he didn't realise perhaps the importance of the piece of paper and, and the consequences. And he even sent a, um, uh, an embassy to Queen Victoria to ask her what her advice was about all these white people coming and saying, can we have mining rights? Should, should, we, should we do that? And in fact, um, uh, Queen Victoria sent a message back Unfortunate for Loma Cooler that it, it arrived after he'd signed the Rudd concession. Um, and, and what it said was be very careful because some of these, these white individuals are not all that honest. So be very careful what you agree to. Uh, and the, the message was brought back by a group of uh, British soldiers in full dress uniform. Um, one of the lifeguards and they have a metal breastplate. And in fact, that didn't impress the, uh, the soldiers of uh, Lomangura a lot because they said, what sort of a chap goes on with a piece of metal in front of his chest? Uh, however, apparently the dress uniform was left behind because someone took a fancy to it. So the fact that he's negotiating, he's sending messages to Queen Victoria means he does have some sort of perspective. So you mentioned earlier that Dr. Leander Starr Jameson had, had met and become friendly with, with uh, Lobangula. What was that all about? He, he was treating him for gout, you said. Yeah, yes, that's right. He, he'd got a very bad gout, in fact. Um, and Jameson, uh, being, if you like, a modern doctor in those terms, uh, was able to prescribe, I think it was morphine, hard, high quantities to, to kill the pain. That'll do and, it. Yeah, it would. And uh, because of this skill, uh, which might not have been a skill at all in this company full of the drugs, uh, Gula had a lot of respect for Jameson, and they got on really quite well. Um, it's said that um, when people approached Gula in his kraal, uh, they sort of went on their hands and knees, which is uh, not, not 80 people, actually, for African rulers at that time. Jameson didn't. He just walked in, um, and which was taking a bit of a risk. But all through Jameson's life, he was a risk taker. Um, and in fact, it, rather than bringing out the anger, it, it impressed uh, Lobangula. Um, and so he was always on sort of relatively good terms with Lobangula, which is why um, it was an extreme situation when he finally decided the only way to solve this these uh, raids is to um, is to go to war. So how did that happen then? How did we go from trying to avoid war, these raids happening, yeah. to then the settlers deciding, okay, we've got no choice, we're going to fight? What happened? Yeah, well, I think I think it was that the raids just continued, and and the one I told you about where. Um, 
one of the, the petty chiefs came and said, can we have your servants, please? And we'll, we'll take them away so you can't see what we're going to do to them. I think that really did frighten the settlers. And uh, the other thing which I may not have mentioned was the fact that while uh, they fled to, to places of safety, uh, the Matabili decided that, um, well, here's a farm. It's got cattle. It's got things. There's nobody here. We'll take it. So uh, it wasn't just a question of fleeing for their lives. Their livelihoods were also at risk. And uh, in the end, uh, Jameson, in consultation with Rose, decided the only way to actually put an end to this, because we've got a lot of money invested in this as a company, is actually to put an end to it through military means. And uh, they had the support of Sir Henry Locke, who was a British uh, representative in South Africa. And they made some quite extensive preparations to actually do this. Their plan was to attack Lobengula's uh, capital, which was Budaway. And they decided they would set off from the three major settlements, uh, Victoria, Salisbury and Thule, uh, and set up and they would march through the country um, until they captured the capital. The plan actually was the captured capital, and of course we will take Lobengula prisoner. When he's prisoner, then things will end. We'll make him see things in a different light. So, so that's how it sort of started. Uh, there was training, um, quite extensive training. Some of the settlers pretended to be soldiers. They got quite fancy uniforms, but were totally useless as military men. Uh, and the fact that they were all volunteers made command a bit difficult because they, were, they weren't necessarily under military discipline. Because you know, presumably these were kind of tough, independent men who wouldn't well, yeah. have taken kindly to following orders necessarily if they didn't agree with them. Absolutely. The only sort of proper military force was the uh, uh, Bekuana police, Bekuana land police. They, they were actually signed up. They were proper, although it says police, they were sort of border patrol people. So we've got these, you said three columns had three been columns, formed, yeah. mainly with these sort of semi-trained settlers. What yeah. happened next? How did, how did things progress? Well, uh, they set off from the three different um, settlements, as I said. The idea was that if you send three and you can sort of do a pincer movement, uh, in a way, it's a bit like the, the Zulu pattern of the, the horns, the, the head and, the, 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 and so on. Um, the Thule column was the one that was uh, it was coming from the south, and that was uh, headed by a chap called Major Hamilton Gould Adam, Adams, who was head of the BPP, and a chap called Commandant Raff. Um, we'll come to him later, I think. Uh, the Victoria column was uh, organised by uh, Major Alan Wilson, and we'll come to him, with the help of Jameson. And the Salisbury column was headed by a man called uh, Patrick Forbes, Major Patrick Forbes. Wilson did a lot of training. In a way, his column um, for amateurs was the best because they spent a lot of time, uh, arms drill, horse care, uh, and so on. Uh, and Jameson was determined to actually accompany them. He was uh, he's that sort of chap. If you think about the Jameson raid, 
he was he was at the front. He was the one directing. He got big ideas about his military skills, um, and he was very keen that his two columns—that's the Victoria and the Salisbury column—which was sort of representing the British South Africa Company, but not really um, a difficult situation—would get to Bulawayo first, because the one who gets there first gets it. They didn't want the British government to be the first there. He wanted to capture uh, Lomangula. Um, very soon, those two columns, Victoria and Salisbury, were, came together and Forbes was put in command. And uh, they uh, journeyed towards uh, Bulawayo. Um, they were quite well armed. They had uh, Maxims and some small cannon. And you've got to remember that um, their opponents were armed at the best with rifles. Uh, incidentally- these, the first... these thousand Martini Henrys that were delivered yeah. to them. Uh... Well, uh, it should have been, but they, they were doing it in, in parts. They'd only had a hundred delivered by the time they decided we want to go. Uh, but, uh, during one of the engagements, when they were picking up um, weapons that were left on the field, they found some very, very high quality rifles, um, better than the ones that the actual settlers had. And there was a suspicion that uh, they were being sold by the Boers to uh, Lobangula because they didn't particularly want the British to, to be successful. Um, there's a lot of hidden politics in this, apart from the military bit. Yeah. So it, it might be the point to look at the three individual commanders because they play a very important part in the uh, the Shangani Patrol. Brilliant. Yeah. Let's let's talk about those. Right. The the the, the head honcho was uh, Forbes. He was born in Whitchurch in England. He was educated at rugby and commissioned in the 6th in the Skilling Dragoons. So he was a, a genuine military man. Um, and like a lot of the settlers, even right down to the lowest trooper, public school. These were sons of the middle class, perhaps not going to inherit what, what their fathers or families had, who went to South Africa to make a fortune. Yeah. Um, and for, for followers from America, we should probably point out when we say public school, it kind of means the opposite in America. So we're talking absolutely. private school. Yeah, private school. Yes, exactly so. Uh, in 1880, he, at um, uh, the age of 19, he went to Cape Colony. And in 1889, he was made second uh, command of the then created British South Africa Police. It was created then. Uh, and he became a major in 1890. Uh, an interesting character, um, full of self-doubt, I think, not much confidence, not very experienced about fighting natives, um, and in charge of men who, as you said, were rough, tough, self-confident, educated, thoughtful, outspoken, and, and possibly he was not the right personality 
to be in charge, but he had the, the regular military background. Alan Wilson, who also was a major, and there you have an interesting friction point. He was born in Scotland. He came from a relatively working class family, so he's out of place. But he uh, was apprenticed to a bank. He was a bank clerk. And to be a bank clerk, you had to have a very good character. And interestingly enough, one of the things that's remarked about him is he didn't drink. And this was at a time when drinking was highly <laughs> uh, common. It's something you could do in, in the nights. Um, he went to Cape Colony, um, actually transferred to a branch, a bank branch, but he joined the Cape Mounted Rifles instead. It wasn't adventurous enough to sit behind a, a counter. He fought in the Zulu War, uh, the First Boer War, and was promoted a sergeant. So he got practical experience of fighting both native troops and the Boers. So good military experience. Uh, when, he was, uh, when he was discharged, um, they got a bonus for being discharged. So he set himself up as a, a trader and a gold prospector. Uh, later he earned uh, a commission in the Basuto police and he joined the Bekuan Land Exploration Company as chief inspector. And he was sent as their representative to Fort Victoria. So that's how he became head of the Victoria Column. He was an official in Victoria, but he'd also got this military background, a useful military background. And finally, we come to Commandant Pieter Raff, a really interesting character. He was born in the Orange Free State. Uh, he was only 16 when he fought in a, a Boer dispute in Basuto land. And he took part in a, a storm, storming of a, a stronghold where he was badly wounded. So good experience of, of uh, fighting against the indigenous peoples. In 1878, he uh, joined the Lindenburg Rifles. Um, and was part of the column sent out to attack the stronghold of, of Chief Sekumi of the Pedi tribe. Um, he also then assisted the uh, British in the Zulu Wars. When those wars was over, he, um, he, he'd already collected a group of native uh, soldiers, Hottentots, as I think they were told at the time, from, and he then later started to be pro-British, he wasn't anti-British, and got involved in the First Zulu, uh, Boer War. And he was at uh, Potchefstroom when it was under siege. And he's, he acted as a sort of liaison between the Boers and, and the British there. But of course, when the town was taken, he was imprisoned and tried as a traitor, because the Boers regarded himself as, as one of them. Uh, some of his colleagues uh, were actually executed. He was sentenced to death, but reprieved by Kruger. Um, and that was a very, it was a very interesting retrospective chap who um, had a lot of experience, more experience than Wilson or 
Forbes. Um, but his position was somewhat ambiguous. They were majors, they were in charge. He was um, a local and they tended to be amongst the, the, the military people, a lack of respect for local people because they hadn't had the Sandhurst training and, and that sort of stuff, Woolwich training. So the column set off and uh, there was resistance on the way and they did fight a battle at uh, Shangani River because the Shangani River meanders through the story all along. They, they set up um, a defensive lager. Interestingly enough, the two columns, the Salisbury column and the Victoria column were side by side, but separate. So they set up a lager with the wagons and so on in the traditional way. And uh, they were very successful. And it was the Victoria column that was particularly successful. And that was because Wilson was a better commander than Forbes. And that was noted on the way. The two columns that were now combined uh, reached Bulawayo in early November, but discovered, not surprisingly, that the king hadn't waited for him. He cleared off uh, and it also destroyed most of the town. Uh, Lobangula uh, was a bit sort of ambiguous in, in, in what he was going to do next. Jameson wanted him to come back. He particularly wanted him to come back before Gould Adams and the Thule column arrived because they represented the government. Jameson wanted to be the man who had captured the king, not the government officer. Uh, and he sent various messages out um, to try and get Logan Gula to come back, making him all sorts of promises about how he'd be treated well. Uh, Logan Gula replied, he said, uh, well, it's, it's all burnt down now. Where am I going to stay? I'm a king. About uh, eight days after the Victoria and the Salisbury column arrived, Gould Adams' Thule column arrived, which changed the, the picture. And Jameson came up with the idea that the only way to actually get Lobangula, because he, he was convinced that if he had him in captivity, the hostilities would stop. I'm not quite so convinced, but uh, that was Jameson's feeling. And so they decided to construct a flying column, a column that would move very quickly, try and capture him. Uh, they felt that he was moving slowly uh, because he was in wagons. He, he couldn't walk because of the gout. He also had a lot of cattle with him, which was um, a, an indication of his status. So he would take those, and obviously that's going to slow down the progress. And uh, the flying column was actually the genuine Shangani patrol. Um, all three of the column leaders, Forbes, Wilson uh, and Raff, were to be part of it. And the column consisted of uh, 90 of the BBP, 60 of a group called the Riff Raff, they, they'd been recruited uh, in Johannesburg and Cape Town 
uh, and were considered to be sort of the dregs. Uh, hence, hence the RAF, it's not on a matter peg entirely. Uh, 60 men from the Victoria column. Forbes was going to be in command. They would take four Maxims and a seven-pounder. Uh, and the Maxims, they were withdrawn by 10 mules and they were sent to bring Logan Buller back. And they also had 200 native bearers. So it's quite a big, a big patrol. The fly in the ointment was when Jameson, speaking to Forbes, who was in overall command, telling him that he must not take any action, offensive or defensive, without first consulting Ralph. Didn't say he had to actually follow Ralph's views, but he had to check with him first. The implication is that you must pay attention to this man because he is the, uh, um, he's the really experienced fighter in these circumstances. Now you can see that that's, uh, that's a, a bone of contention. That's already undermined Forbes because if he's got to go and consult somebody who's considered to be an inferior before he does anything, then is he really in command? And he's also got Wilson alongside him, same rank, uh, again, more experienced, already demonstrated at the Battle of Shingali River that he has skills in commanding men in those circumstances that perhaps Forbes, Forbes likes. Because um, at this point, how many, how many Matabele warriors do we think are still out there at this point? Thousands. Right. Thousands. Um, Probably, prob I don't think anybody's actually calculated it well, but thousands. You're looking at um, a number of impies, and, and they're well organised. It's a military uh, tradition. They know what they're doing, and their commanders know what they're doing. So despite having Bulawayo, their sort of King's Kraal, burnt down, we're yeah. still talking about a legitimate fighting force that is not broken at this point. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, although... They did suffer um, quite a few casualties at the Shingali River battle. Um, there were only there was only a part of them involved. It wasn't the whole army. Uh, there were many um, groups out in the bush, um, and of course the the bush was very dense, and they could stay in there and keep out the way without being spotted, and and that was one of the issues that um, they could suddenly appear out of the bush and attack the patrol uh, from any direction. And in, in fact, while ever the patrol was moving, the, the Maxims and the cannon weren't much use. They had to stop, unload them and get them ready and prepared. And of course, when it comes to hand-to-hand -hand fighting, impies are the best. So if they could actually get into a column, they could wreak a great deal of habit. So was it enough for the task? Possibly not, uh, but he, Jameson was keen to make it a quick kill. Why was there such a few? Well, Lobangul is somewhere ahead of you. You don't know exactly how far. Um, if you have a, a big column, if you take the whole group, you're really slowed down. And every day he gets further away. Uh, they also were not very well equipped 
they had supplies for three days. Uh, so whether or not they thought they'd catch him in three days, uh, I think probably unlikely. Uh, but what they did think was they would uh, find plenty of supplies on the way. They would find kraals and, and so on, which they could um, they could loot, basically. Um, and the lack of supplies uh, was one of the issues that they found. So they left on the 14th of uh, November, two days after uh, Gould Adams had arrived. And uh, they decided they were going to travel at night and rest in the daytime because they, they thought, possibly correctly, that the uh, Mashona, uh, the Matabili rather, would uh, not attack at night. Uh, there were incidents, for example, where the columns let off rockets to try and attract uh, little groups of their own men that had, were away. And it seems that the Matabili thought that was magical and, and so on. So would attack in the daytime. Um, and of course, when you camp, you lager and you get your, your maxims and your cannon and what you... Uh, at proper points during your lager, and you were, it's much more defensive. Uh, they did make quite a bit of progress, and they captured some underbeely, and they were told, or Forbes was told, that the actual people were fed up of fighting. They wanted to surrender. Uh, Forbes had a bit of a weakness. He always believed what he was told by the natives. Um, what he didn't realise is that on a number of occasions, occasions, they were telling him what they thought he wanted to hear. You know, we're giving up, we're not going to fight, uh, and or the king is only a few, few miles in front, things like that. Um, and, and he fell for it. Uh, food amongst the, the column was very short said they'd only got three days. And of course, remember, these are volunteers, a lot of them. And they're not being fed very well. And the conditions are a bit are very poor. And some of them were beginning to say, well, why are we doing this? That the king's run off. Perhaps we should wait for him to come back because we've got his capital. Uh, we've got a lot of his land. Um, why are we suffering like this? Why are we going on starvation diet? Uh, and, and here we get an example of Forbes' poor management skills. He decided that he would call the three groups together, uh, Riff, Riff Raff, uh, the Victoria Column, and the Salisbury Column representatives. And he didn't tell them, and he, he assembled them individually. He didn't tell them why they were being assembled. And he suddenly said to them something like, well, it's a bit tough. If anybody doesn't want to support this activity, step forward. Um, much to his surprise, a lot of men stepped forward. But the, one, the main ones who didn't were Wilson's men. They were much more disciplined. Wilson was a better disciplinarian than Forbes. 
of course, they didn't ask the BPP because they were sort of regulars and they, you don't ask regulars whether or not uh, um, they want to fight. They, they do as they're ordered. Many wanted to return. Uh, a message was sent back to Jameson at Bulawayo saying, we're starving, we're running out of ammunition, uh, and he promised to send more food and more um, supplies. Uh, and they, the patrol retreated, and they retreated to a place called Shiloh, which had been a mission station. And while they were there, they decided we'd better look and see what's going to happen next, because it's not working as we thought. Um, Jameson did send 10 wagon loads of ammunition and food and an extra 200 men. Uh, and as it's remarked in the account of this, enough randy for one totter man. And apparently that, that boosted their morale. <laughs> as it would. <laughs> it would, as it would, but only one top. Um, as you, you can gather, an extra 200 men when there's a food shortage might not have been the best thing to do, particularly as most of these men were on foot. So if they're going to pursue Lobangula, they will be walking, not on horseback. So uh, not exactly the best, the best thing to do, but I think it was probably all that Jameson could do at that moment. And how long had the patrol been going at this point? Uh, about four days. Right. About four days. Uh, Forbes decided that in spite of this extra bounty that Jameson had, had set, he had to reduce the patrol even further because it was just too big. It was moving too slowly. They didn't have enough food, even with the extra. Uh, and 200 men on foot were not, was not helping. So he reduced the patrol to 22 men from the Salisbury column. 70 men uh, with Wilson uh, and 100 men on foot from the Victoria Column. Now, uh, you could see that Wilson now has the largest proportion of men in this, this group. They were much better horsemen, caring for horses, I mean. They were much more rigorous in their discipline. Uh, they were the ones who didn't want to go back. So you could see that that's why... Wilson's uh, was the largest. Uh, Raff was uh, sent with 20 mounted men and the 78 BBP, which is unusual because Raff wasn't actually a proper officer. Uh, but he was in, put in charge of the BPP over the actual Captain Coventry, who was the, the nominal commander. And just, so, to, just to clarify for anyone who missed it, the BPP was the Betuana Police Force, is that right? Yeah, Border Patrol, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were regulars, if you like. They were as near to regulars as they had it at that time. Um, that made a total of 190 men on horseback and 100 on foot. Now, even with 100 on foot, they're, they're going to be slowed down. Uh, they had four wagons, two... Two of the wagons had their Maxim on them, and the other two Maxims were drawn by horses. And they also had a Hotchkiss, which is a rapid-fire gun. Um, Forbes actually didn't want to take any wagons, 
because they thought that would slow them down. The, the conditions, the, it was raining a lot, the, it was muddy, the wagons would get stuck. So he was reluctant to take them. But he decided he would because they were there. And they also, uh, he also had a mind that if people were wounded, because they did expect uh, battles, they could be put in the wagons and, and carried like that. Uh, they took sufficient supplies for 12 further days. All the rest of the people were sent back to Bulawayo. They then set off on the 25th of uh, November to try and pursue Lomengul again. Remember, he's had a number of days to get further away while they were just reorganising. The weather was very, very bad. Heavy rains. Uh, they travelled towards the Shangani River. And they came across a large group of, of uh, underbeely who claimed that Lobangula was on the other side of uh, the Shangani River, but only had a few followers. So Forbes thought he was there. A few miles ahead, not many supporters. We're going to get him. Um, the there was actually an outbreak of, of smallpox amongst the Enderbeely nation, which actually debilitated them, as you can imagine. And this idea that we've had enough of fighting, we really want to go home, because they were travelling away from their homes as well to flee, um, and they wanted to go back. Um, this is another example of Forbes' naivety. He said, yes, you can go back to Bulawayo, where your home is. When you get there, Report to Jameson, but do not tell Lobangula that we're right, right behind him. And of course, he was very surprised when they did, because again, this business about Lobangula and you know was just they thought that's what uh, he wanted to hear. They continued the search, the patrol, uh, and they came across one of Lobangula's wagons, which had been stuck in the mud and was abandoned. And another uh, tribesman who said he was only 15 miles away now, on the far bank. He got a few warriors, but there was a larger group of people herding his cattle. It was his cattle that were slowing him down. The river was reported to be very low. And travelling further towards it, the patrol set up a camp and Forbes sent Wilson with his best 12 horses. Again, Wilson's men were better look at, at looking after their horses. Uh, and to follow the king's tracks towards the river, where there was probably a crossing point, a drift. Uh, Wilson was to try and find that drift, find out how far Lomangula was on the other side, and gather any useful information he could. But, and here's the key but, he must return by nightfall. These instructions were very important. And had Wilson followed them, the tragedy that occurred might not have happened. Now, we've talked about uh, the conflict between the three leaders. Wilson had heard a rumour, and it was probably more than a rumour, that Forbes' plan was that when, he, when Wilson came back, reported the whereabouts of Lomangula, he would be left with the wagons 
and a few other men, while Forbes led the rest of the group across the drift and captured Lubanguna. And got all the glory. And got all the glory, exactly. Um, I, think, I think Wilson had heard this because there was a lot of gossip amongst the various commanders. Remember, they're not soldiers. Soldiers might be more competent at keeping secrets, but these were not. And apparently Forbes didn't like Raff a lot because Raff talked to his men and told them everything. Uh, probably wise because uh, they, they were just volunteers, you know, and they were there for the money and they weren't there to get killed. Um, and, and Raff had this rapport. And which, so, which, you know, historically has always been the Boer way of fighting, isn't it? You know, you, yeah. you, you have a democratically yeah. elected, you know, yeah. field cornet who commands yeah. the commando or, exactly. you know. Exactly, exactly so. And Wilson couldn't, uh, sorry, Forbes couldn't quite appreciate this because he was his background was I'm an officer, you're a man. I don't talk to you unless it's to give you an order, um, and that was a problem. So Wilson, therefore, having heard that he must return, wasn't keen. He thought that he could capture Lobangula with the men he had with him, and he set off with twelve men. Now, thinking he might do that. Uh, was a bit foolish with only 12 because they, they would still be massively outnumbered. Uh, there were a number of officers who saw Wilson going and sort of said, where are you going, Alan? And they said, oh, we're going over the, we're going to see if we can find Lovangola. And they said, oh, well, we'll come along. We'll come along with you again. You see, the discipline is not that good. And one of them actually said to his, uh, the, the chap he was sharing a tent with, uh, keep me dinner warm for you. I will be back, which indicates that they actually thought they'd be returning. He wanted to be in the kill, did Wilson. Uh, they'd agreed that the Shingrani River would be the end of their patrol. If they couldn't capture Lobangula by the time they reached it, they would return. Remember, they'd only got 12 days food. Uh, and also the horses uh, were knocked up. Off he set then, did, did Wilson. Forbes was hoping he would come back, tell him the whereabouts, tell him where you could cross the river easily because he, he would want to get the maxims over and so on. Uh, and then he would capture the king. Uh, at nine o'clock that day, two of Wilson's groups return uh, to give an account of the progress of, of the 12. So he's now down to 14 or 15. Remember the extra officers went. They crossed the river which was almost dry, important point. Wilson was certain that the king was only a little way ahead. And rather than returning to Forbes, he sent these two men uh, across the river to get Forbes to come and help him capture. Forbes was absolutely livid. He was in charge. Here's one of his junior officers telling him what to do. And there again, you can see this is the military background of Forbes getting in the way. A um, couple of hours later, two more of Wilson's men come to tell uh, Forbes that he'd found the king's camp. Uh, there'd been a skirmish. Wilson and his men had retreated into the bush 
uh, and the weather had broken again. It was raining heavily. Uh, they'd found uh, a settlement, a, a camp, and the reason they thought that the Lobangula was there, they didn't see him, was that there was a white horse tethered outside one of the huts. And horses amongst the Endebili were unusual, and therefore it must be somebody of high status. And Wilson uh, was convinced it was Lobangula. So there's there's the dilemma for Forbes. Wilson is saying, come over and help me capture Lomangula. Forbes is thinking, why didn't, why didn't Wilson come back? And then I could have done it. So what do I do? Uh, when he further questioned the, the messengers that Wilson had sent, they said, he thinks what you're going to do is to bring your maxims cross the river at the, the drift and join his small party. Then, with the, the large number, we can actually attack the camp and capture him. However, Forbes was in two minds because he knew that moving the, um, the Maxims with the wagons and so on would make a lot of noise. So it could not be um, an advance, a secret advance. It would be heard by the, the Indabili and also, there was rumours, strong rumours, that there was a large impi behind Forbes approaching him. So he's got the river in front of him. He's got an impi behind him. And he's got Wilson trying to take all the blame. So what does he do? Could he actually send an order with the, to order Wilson to return? That would mean the mission was a failure. And it would be his fault because he hadn't gone to support him. Actually, that was what he should have done. But he was frightened of losing face. Um, if he'd have ordered Wilson to come back and Wilson had disobeyed a direct order and tragedy had happened, it would be Wilson's fault. Or Wilson might have obeyed it and then they could return um, because they were running out of food, they'd reached the limits and so on. So what did he do? Probably the worst thing he could do. He decided he would send another small detachment to join Wilson. Now, there's a, a military maxim, isn't it? You don't divide your force in the face of the enemy. Um, but that's what he did. And he, remember, he'd not got very many in the first place. So he split his, now split his thing into three groups. Wilson had somewhere between 12 and 15 men. We're not quite sure exactly how many officers had gone with him. And Forbes decided to send an additional party of 20. Raff is said to have expressed a view, and it can be interpreted two ways when he heard this. This was the beginning of the end. So, shall I sort of carry on with the story? Yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying it. So, so, so what happens next? What happens next, right? 20 reinforcements are, are, are chosen to cross the Shangani and to join up with Wilson. Forbes reorganises now a much smaller camp, fully expecting to be attacked by the MP behind him. After some delay and no attack, Forbes has 37 men. You see, he's got 
15 in one bit, 20 in another, 37. And behind him and in the bush, there are still hundreds, if not thousands, of underbeeling. And do we know at this point how Wilson's men are deployed? Are they, are they in some form of lager? Are they just yeah. spread out willy-nilly? What do we oh, know about their formation? Sort of, uh, they, they are in the bush. And in fact, um, during that uh, skirmish that they, they had when they came to the camp, a couple got separated and they were the couple that came back. But they're just in, they've no wagons. They're just you know, form a circle, if you like, um, of the 15 men to defend it. They, they tried to find the best defensive position in the bush with the trees as cover and so on. But but that was it. And and I suppose it's obvious that the Indabili were much more used to fighting in the bush than, than Wilson's men. So they're in real, real danger of being overwhelmed. So the, the 20 men are sent. Um, and Forbes is expecting an attack. It doesn't happen. So he uh, loads up his, his horses and, and his wagons and he sets off towards the river. So again, he was asked to go. He didn't. He sent some men and now he's changed his mind again and he's moving towards the river, presumably to cross it at the drift and then join Wilson. But always remembering, he really thinks, and he was right, there were, there were an impi behind him. They reached, they, they, they headed towards this drift. And they were attacked. The attack occurred while they were on the move. Uh, so they had to stop, they had to lager as best they could in a, in a hurry and fight off the attack. Uh, the Ndabila were using a very clever technique. They weren't coming out of the bush, they were just firing. Uh, unfortunately, they were not particularly good shots. Apparently they used to set their sights a bit too high. Same uh, as the Zulus. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they, um, they were firing out of the bush and all that uh, Forbes men could see was the puffs of smoke from the rifles. Um, so they really no idea how effective their return fire was. And uh, so they, they are, the, the attack stopped. Eventually, the, the, um, uh, the Underbeely retreated further down into the bush. Um, when they got towards the river, they realised it was now very much higher. All that rain that I mentioned, higher up, had caused the river to flood. And it was getting to the stage where it was almost impossible to cross. Uh, however, two scouts that had been with uh, Forbes, uh, sorry, been with Wilson, who were really experienced bushmen, suddenly appeared. They had crossed the river, they'd swum the horses, and they uh, approached Forbes, and one of them said, I think I may say that we are the sole survivors of that party. Um, the interesting point for me is, had Wilson retreated to the river, if the two men could cross, some of his men could have crossed as well. But they chose not to. And by the time 
there was any doubt in their minds, the river was so uh, fierce that they could not. So they were being attacked now by very large numbers of warriors and being wiped out gradually, one at a time. In the end, there were no survivors as to what was happened. But much later, three uh, Underbeely warriors were interviewed for a newspaper column. And they gave us a description of, um, uh, and this may be a romantic description, of how the, the, the 35 men now met their end. They were supposed to sing the national anthem it's a good Victorian story, this. <laughs> yeah, I'm always wary of stories like that, I have to be honest. Yeah, um, there, there's another uh, version. The, the three uh, warriors that were into it were not exactly dead clear. There is some evidence, but it, the evidence comes from them, and they're, they're reflecting on years previously that they were just singing a ribald song. There was something rude they were singing, not the national anthem. That sounds a bit more realistic. I, I think, I think, I think so. But this is the painting a Victorian <laughs> picture here, or the, yeah, and and uh, that they did that. And there's also a suggestion that um, Wilson was the last to die. Um, again, I, I don't think that's right. I think it's part of the, mm. the legend. It's 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 funny with all these legends. It's always the commanding officer who's the last to die, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. that's right. Um, the description that they gave doesn't actually fit what what he looked like, but they seem to think he was the man in charge. Um, uh, and uh, there is some. There is also a bit of evidence when when the, the bones were reinterred. Eventually, uh, reinterred. Uh, near to Rhodesgrave. Uh, and when the they were first found, there was a head missing. Um, and they, the people who found it, thought that the head had been sent to Lobangula to prove that, you know, they killed the, the commander. Um, however, they all did say, though, all three of them, that they died very bravely. Um, I don't think... I don't want to take anything away from that. I'm sure they did. But there's no alternative. They were being attacked on all sides. Um, you'd fire the rifles to the last bullet, I guess. Um, but generally speaking, they did die bravely. I would say they died needlessly. Because and presumably, I don't know the details, but presumably very similar to the Zulus. I doubt the end of Bele took prisoners. No, no, they didn't. They, they were all wiped out. Um, and I suppose that, that indicates, as you know, the Zulus were, were quite keen to kill people um, and, and release the soul of the person so that they, uh, um, they were not um, guilty of killing a being. You know the story better than I. Mm. Um, but they were, all, uh, they were all wiped out, basically. Um, and I, A, the river was now impassable. B, they started to be attacked by more under Bealey on the far on the near bank. And Forbes had very little alternative but to, to go. And, and he took uh, the scouts uh, 
idea that they'd all been killed or Wilson's men have been killed to heart. And what's the point of trying to go over when it's too late, when we're in these terrible circumstances? Uh, and Forbes seems to have lost his nerve and Raff took over the command of the column. Oh, really? So Forbes lost it completely at this point, did he? Uh, it, it depends who, who you listen to. Uh, Forbes was very forthcoming about his contribution. Um, but when the people got back, when they, 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 this patrol, remember the Shingani patrol is the whole lot, and I distinguish them between Shingani patrol and Wilson's patrol, the ones that were wiped out. Um, they're not the same. And when they actually got back to civilization, as it were, a lot of the survivors said if it wasn't for Raff's bushcraft and skill, we wouldn't have got back at all. Um, however, uh, and Forbes did have the good grace because when they got back to civilization, there waiting for them was Jameson, who wanted to know what was going on, really. Um, and Forbes did tell Jameson what a useful member of the patrol um, Raff had been. But I think he was a bit more than a useful one. I think, I think all his skills and so on, uh, and the men he had under his command, who were really experienced bushfighters and so on, um, did help the survival. Uh, and Forbes, I think, had now been hamstrung by the RAF uh, indictment that he must, must consult with him. And he was giving orders to RAF, and RAF was sort of interpreting them rather than obeying them to the letter when, it, when he thought they were, they were foolish. Uh, and it was a good job RAF was there. They had a very hazardous withdrawal. Uh, well, that actually is what Forbes called it, a withdrawal. Uh, I think it was actually a retreat. Uh, they were being attacked on all sides on a regular basis by the Ndebele, who clearly didn't want to give up fighting. Uh, they'd already had a bit of a victory with Wilson. Let's see if we can finish it off. Um, and in fact, one of the uh, Ndebele chiefs uh, later on, uh, when peace was restored, uh, had said the only way to, to solve the problem is to force the, the white people back over the mountains and out of the country. Because while ever they were there, they would be trying to take it, but, but they couldn't do it. Uh, they met Jameson, uh, and as I said, Roe. Um, Forbes was very keen to defend his reputation to Jameson. Jameson was his boss. Uh, Raff died a couple of days later. He apparently, uh, the accounts are that he uh, didn't eat a great deal during the patrol. He actually gave his food to the men, to his men, shared it. Um, and he was taken out when the patrol returned and they had a big meal, a big feast to celebrate the, I don't know what, the return rather than success, I guess. And there's some evidence, and of course, medical evidence from the, those times is a bit scarce, uh, that in fact he, he overate 
and quickly died of dinner dysentery. <laughs> he hadn't been eaten very much, and suddenly he had this massive, uh, and it killed him. Um, there was a room such a bizarre way to go for such a warrior, isn't it? Often, oh, yeah. often these great warriors die yeah. in the most bizarre ways. Absolutely, uh, and in fact. Um, Forbes tried to let it be known that he'd been ill all the time all during the patrol. Um, but in fact, uh, it's been questioned, I think, very sensibly. If he was really so weak and ill, ne near to death, would his men have followed him? Because remember, these are volunteers and they look to leadership and so on. So uh, I think the story of him dying as a result of this meal um, has a lot of truth in it. And as you say, what a way to go after you'd fought your way all, all yeah. those times. So how that, long, in, in, in total then, how long had it taken from the patrol leaving and then uh, on what day was the final, well, the battle on the river where, where obviously Wilson's men were wiped out and then how long to get back to, to you know, civilization in inverted commas? It, I suppose the whole, the whole lot was something like two weeks to right. an hour, something like that, not long, because we've talked about the uh, shortage of supplies. Uh, we've talked about the, the, most of that time was, was spent in camp waiting for things to happen, not moving forward. Um, Raf's death was convenient, actually, for Forbes, because it meant he was the only senior officer left. So it was going to be his version of events. And they did, uh, th there was a, a book produced very soon after the raid, uh, which is worth looking at. And it, it's got contributions by Forbes in it. And of course, there's no contributions much by Wilson, none by Raff. So he, he's the storyteller. And he's conscious that his reputation's on the line. And so things are glossed. The massacre of, of uh, the Wilson's men was the 4th of December, and that was held as a sort of national day in Rhodesia until 1920, Shangani Day. Forbes got to Britain um, before the inquiry into the, the disaster happened. There had to be a government inquiry. You can't have men being killed in those sorts of numbers, not that many, without the government investigating the circumstances. And when he arrived in Britain, uh, he was treated as a hero. And then shortly afterwards, the story came out and he was shunned. Um, he went, he was uh, re-employed by the British South Africa company in a very minor role. And eventually at the outbreak of uh, the First World War, he came back to England and he ran a prisoner of war camp. Um, and of course, Jameson, on the other hand, in spite of being a disaster, that was glossed over. He came to Britain, was decorated, became the hero, and then went back, as we know, to plot a further expansion of the British Empire, the capture of Johannesburg, which was the Jameson raid, which failed. And then one of a person who I'd love to hear about, what happened in the end to Lobingula? What's the story and how did the war ah, finally end? Very interesting. Um, we don't know, frankly. Um, he certainly didn't 
rejoin his people in great numbers. There's some, there is a story that he committed suicide. There is a story that his treasure was um, put in a cave. And in about the 1930s, supposedly discovered. But the stories are very vague. He, he, he just dropped out of history. He was never captured. He, the fact that um, he, he'd escaped but run away, as far as his people are concerned, damaged his reputation amongst them. Uh, they wanted to live peacefully. Uh, and he, he virtually just dropped off the page of history. And so it was a sad end for such a proud warrior king. Up until today, life is still tough for the Matabele, aka the Endebele people. Modern Zimbabwean politics is dominated by the Mashona tribe, and so huge numbers of Endebele have been forced to migrate to South Africa, where they often find themselves unwelcome and targets of xenophobic attacks. Ironic, really, given that the tribe originally hails from this side of the border. If you've enjoyed the show today, then please do subscribe and share it with friends. I'll be back soon with another episode. I've got lots of great episodes coming up, actually, including more on the Anglo-Sikh Wars. I think you'll really enjoy them. Cheers, guys, and take care.